G'day, Ideas Digest, friends of the show. Before I hit play on this next episode, I want to let you in on some of the future episodes I'm currently working on so that you can continue to shape the show. I'm working on a series of episodes exploring sexuality as well as the recently introduced conversion therapy bill. Sorry, American listeners, of which I have a few. This is a, a bill that was introduced into Victoria, Australia. So you might be thinking, oh, who cares? It's Australia. No, nah, but you probably don't because you're interested in stuff like that because you listen to the show. Thanks for listening. So I'm looking to include as many diverse and challenging perspectives as possible for these two uh, episode series serieses I'm working on. So if you come across an idea that triggers you, challenges you, maybe it's an idea you're inspired by, shoot me a DM on Instagram or an email, artistdigest at gmail.com. Perhaps with a link, an article, the person, I want to be able to include whatever you're coming across into the conversation as well. You as friends of the show are going to continue to shape the show and the rabbit holes we go down in our quest to understand those people who are different to ourselves. So I'm trying to include as many diverse opinions and perspectives as possible. If I fail at that sometimes, I'm bloody trying, all right? You can help expand the perspectives shown on the show. So any ideas around sexuality and this new conversion therapy bill, shoot it my way and I will try and explore them on future episodes. Thanks for joining the journey. I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. Welcome back, everybody, to Ideas Digest, the podcast practice that breaks down the ideas that divide us in order to find the humanity that connects us. My name's Conrad. Now, if you're a new listener, welcome. You don't have to join from the beginning. You can go back in the backlog, you can catch up, or you can just not and just start listening. That's fine. Welcome to the practice of setting aside the question, hey, mate, do you agree or disagree? Doesn't matter here. Let's set aside that question and enter into the process of learning more about how someone sees the world because that is what I personally find really interesting. If you would like to turn this podcast into a practice because at the top I said, hey, it's a podcast practice. You're like, what the hell is a practice? Well, three things that you can do. One, you're already doing. Listen to the episode that triggers you the most. If you if you look at a title and be like, man, I'm going to disagree with that guy. If you're looking at the title and you're like, man, what an idiot. Click it. Listen to it. Trigger yourself. That's step number one. You may have already done that. Or you're, or you're just listening to someone you agree with. We can do that too. It's sometimes nice to relax and just talk in an echo chamber. I do it all the time. Number two, ask. So when you're listening, as you're listening, or when you finish, I want you to jump onto Instagram and on like the post about the episode, I want you to ask a question that you wish I'd asked. What did I miss? Just be like, oh, I wish I found out about this. What questions do you have for the guest that I could have asked? It'll make me a better questioner as I progress, but it'll also help you engage with trying to understand a bit deeper. And number three respond. When you finish, jump into the DMs and share like a short Twitter response. Uh, what did it make you think? How was it helpful? Was it unhelpful? Uh, and if, you, you, if you're one of these trolls, I had a few uh, trolls 
on my last conversation when I interviewed a pro-Trumper, a lot of the audience there was a, was a, big, a bit of a troll audience. But you know what? That's okay. You can send me your troll, your troll requests. I'll just send you a laughy emoji and move on. Uh, it's completely up to you, whatever you'd like to do. So let's begin, as always, on the show with the clickbait. Now, you might be thinking, Conrad, why are you copying the worst thing about BuzzFeed and news today? Well, because it isn't going away. Clickbait is not going anywhere. And uh, listen, it, it's, it's often, all too often, what we take away from a conversation. And this is the practice of hearing the clickbait, as it will always be there, and going into the conversation. So today's clickbait, here we go. Trigger pants, belt tight, let's go. White Jesus as white supremacist. There's some, there's some strong, strong words in there. Some, some two ideas held side by side. Are you calling Jesus a white supremacist? I'm not sure, but we're going to find out. Now, le- let me introduce my next, my, my guest, my new friend of the show, Claudia. Thanks for joining me and coming on the show. I am. I'm just, I'm just thrilled to be here. And I'm, I'm glad you're excited because we're now going to go with this excitement into a very uncomfortable game. It's, it's more uncomfortable for the person asking the assumptions okay. because we have assumptions and we never, we never just ask the person about them because yeah. it's a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. But here on Ideas Digest, we lean into the discomfort because it's going to help us grow a little bit. So we've heard this clickbait, mm-hmm. white Jesus is white supremacist. We've heard an American accent. We might be thinking some assumptions and that's okay. We all do it. Yeah. Let's just lean into it. And we're going to do the thing that we probably should do when we have an assumption about somebody. We're just going to ask Claudia what our assumptions are. I did, a, I did a bit of Googling, trying to find, you know, just trying to get in the headspace of someone who might be really triggered by, by these things. Yeah. And I, we'll start light and we'll get a bit heavier. Claudia, the game is you get a simple yes or no. I've got two tiny boxes here. I'm going to force you kicking and screaming into one of the boxes. Okay. No nuance at this time for the game. Cool. I love it. Okay, great. All right. So we hear an accent. You're American. Yes. Surely. Yes. Yes. And then if you're American, you must be a Christian Trump voter. (laughs) No. No. Hard no on that one. Okay. Well, if you're not a Trump voter, let's swing the other way. You must be this liberal elite lefty. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Since it's only only yes or no, right? You said no nuance. That's right. Yeah, so that's y- right. <laughs> you pick the box that fits and I just shove you in there. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So okay, a liberal elite lefty then. Okay. You mustn't be a Christian. No. I am. So that's okay, okay. <laughs> I was like, no. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm a liberal lefty that loves Jesus. So let's go with these some of these lefty uh, analogies there. We're, we're boxing, we're getting the boxes getting smaller. Yes. You're a like an SJW, like a social justice warrior. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, embrace that one. Okay, yeah. so that's got to go hand in hand with you must then be an angry feminist. Wow, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, hard no. Okay, all right. Glad we put that one to rest. Yeah. Because, you know, some people tie these things together. <laughs> See how this game's quite simple. You just ask people what you might be thinking and then they'll just correct it. This is okay. great. You then, if you're on the left, mm-hmm. you're, the, you're a lefty that is obsessed with the culture war and identity politics. That's what you're about. You're about identity <laughs> politics. 
Ah, uh, I'm gonna have to say yes. Oh, all right, good. The 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 right might might have boxed you in that one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so going from the clickbait, mm-hmm. and then going from like this identity politics angle as we narrow you down, mm-hmm. white supremacy, identity politics, social justice warrior. You must think all white people are white supremacists or racists. No. No, that's a hard no. Well, that was that was a, a game where we went oh, a bit on both sides. Mm-hmm. Now that's over, you can jump out of the box that I forced you into. Thank it doesn't you. Quite fit. <laughs> it doesn't quite fit everybody into the box. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself, Claudia, and... Uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about yourself, and you can you can clarify any of the like assumptions we've we've thrown at you if you want to throw anything in there. Just yeah. want to learn like your job, education, upbringing, things like that. Sure, man. So this that was like the greatest game ever. First of all, that was dope. Um, oh, good. I've had some awkward interactions with people over that before. I'll release an really? interview, and the guy I was interviewing was like, he thought I was accusing him of these things, and he was getting very upset. And I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, man, like this is just a fun little game. Yeah, really, it's not fun. Let's move on. It's just an icebreaker, <laughs> friend. Like, don't take it personally. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, church people get it. It's just an icebreaker. Right. <laughs> um. Uh. So, um, I am American. I'm Black American. Um. My family is all pretty much from here, from the States. So I don't have, like, a lot of people sometimes when they meet me will think, oh, is she, like, Caribbean? Is she maybe, like, Uh from the Dominican? Or uh, maybe is she mixed with something else? And, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, no. So as far as I know, my heritage is, um, it definitely kind of goes back to American slavery in the South. Um, And then... I don't know anything prior to that. You know, I think that's a critical aspect mm-hmm. of the history, right? Like the, the genealogy is yeah, okay. most certainly kind of disrupted. Like you can only go so far back yeah. to kind of figure out who you are and who you're attached to. Um, but mm-hmm. from stories with family, I have been told that I have um, like Native American, obviously African. But what is really cool is I think my grandfather's grandfather was a a fully white Jew. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have picked that one. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, okay, this is really interesting. Right. Um, I like it. I like it. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of like the the heritage uh, aspect of yep. me. Um, mm-hmm. I am most definitely a social justice warrior. Um, anybody that like maybe follows me on Instagram or anything like that, I am always either writing blogs or articles preaching or doing some yeah. kind of public speaking like something it's what is, always what does social that. justice warrior mean to you when you use that title because it's often used as a slur from the political right to be like those sjw's mm. right when, when you're using it what does it stand for when you say i'm a social justice warrior yeah so for me i actually feel like it's it's that I am an advocate for human rights because I don't even just see myself as someone that's just advocating for black equality. Um, Whereas Mm. I feel like sometimes the right tries to suggest that social justice warriors, particularly black social justice warriors only care about black issues. And I don't think that that's true. Um, Mm. I can definitely say that even though I do 
talk very boldly about things like police brutality and whatnot, I also care about climate change. (laughs) So, you know, I think that it's possible, like for me in my mind, being a social justice warrior means where is the injustice in the world and how can I be a constant advocate for creating and bringing about justice in the world, no matter where it is or Mm -hmm. what it is. So if that is Mm -hmm. environmental justice, if that is um, justice for the poor, if that is justice for black people, if it's, if it's justice for Mm -hmm. um, Mexican immigrants, if it's justice for dreamers, people who come to the, um, to the States to study, it really doesn't matter. It's just, for Mm -hmm. me, it's just Mm -hmm. like, how can I be a warrior and advocate for people um, who are experiencing oppression in any way, shape or form? Yeah, right. That yeah, okay. And in your like what are you doing now with yourself? Yeah. So, uh as a like a career or vocation. Yeah, yeah. So, currently I'm the online content manager for um a Christian magazine called um Message. Mm-hmm. Um and so I kind of do that, but then I also am kind of a professional public speaker. So, I do a lot of mm-hmm. um public speaking whether at like churches or schools or um, community mm-hmm. events. Um, and a lot of it is around um, speaking from the standpoint of kind of teaching on these things. Cause I think that so many times mm-hmm. when we think of injustice, we think that it's just kind of this emotional feeling of like, I'm upset yeah. and I want to get to a mic and yell about being angry. Right. Whereas it's not so much yeah. about that. There's actually <clears throat> a lot of intellect and research that goes into and behind understanding how systems and structures work and how can I communicate yeah. to people whether that be in written content or spoken content about what those systems are doing and how we mm-hmm. can bring about change um, for that kind of work. So that's what I kind of do yeah. for the magazine. And yeah, there's an interesting, there's an interesting it, like things that people may not put together. Um, and it's interesting as to why they don't go together. I think we're still unpacking that. But the social justice arm of like pro-climate change, pro-racial equality, pro-just equality in general. Yeah. And Christianity. It, mm-hmm. it It's almost, to, to put those together, like maybe people would make the assumption that if you're often a social justice warrior, you're like this kind of crystal-wielding Californian hippie and you're <laughs> probably anti-Christianity in that yeah. sense. Like uh, you, you see the, the people who are who are almost most involved in these issues often aren't christians and uh, mm-hmm. the stereotype of a christian at the, yeah maybe at the moment or maybe the whole time i'm not entirely sure mm-hmm. but it often goes with the conservative pro trump right wing you know the family values family values as a value seems to be pitted directly against social justice as a value in the political spectrum if, mm-hmm. if that makes sense so to talk to you who is a Christian mm-hmm. and a social justice thing as we, as we, and that's, I guess what we'll probably be putting together in the clickbait. Um, yeah. And just before we get there, what, what is your religious, I guess, background? Did you grow up Christian or, and what specific denomination and things like that? Yeah. So I definitely grew up Christian uh, and I grew up seventh day Adventist in particular. So I absolutely mm-hmm. grew up in a church, just like what you were talking about, Conrad, where like, Social justice is not attached to Christianity at all. So it's like... Right. Like not spoken about. Yeah, exactly. Because at the end of the day, we believe that Jesus is coming back. So this is Uh supposed to be the second coming. So if I believe that Jesus is coming back, then I don't have to fix anything that's wrong with the world. 
in fact, let's just hang on just and hang wait on for and that, wait till he that comes. God, the guy in the robe to come. Right. That's yeah, exactly yeah. right. And so it's a lot of this. It was a lot of this mindset growing up that um, if I can get you to just wait it out and a mm-hmm. lot of prophecy, you know, they, they teach a lot of prophecy. And so the idea is that like, oh, in the last days, things are going to get much worse. And so because there's a belief that things are going to get worse, and then on top of that, I'm kind of waiting for a a savior to physically remove me from the earth, then that means that like, oh, racism, hey, you know, just wait for Jesus, you know, um, you know, sexism, are you, are you being abused? Are any things going on? You know, just, just wait for basically an escape route. And growing up in that as a black person, that was a that was extremely conflicting for me. I could not reconcile mm-hmm. somebody telling me about this kind of an escape route theology, an escape route religion, mm-hmm. um, but then also being a black person with a black family and a black body and and black history that has experienced structural and systemic oppression. And there was a part of me that just felt mm-hmm. like I believe that the gospel has something to say about this stuff. I don't I don't disagree about mm-hmm. all the other theology that they teach or preach, but I just fundamentally felt like I feel like there's got to be something more to this. I feel like there's got to be an answer in scripture to these other issues, social issues as well. And so that's kind of where I departed. Mm-hmm. I'm still Seventh-day Adventist. I still believe in all those, all the other theology okay. and doctrines, but I most certainly have kind of, I exist within a space where I identify as Christian first, then I identify mm-hmm. as Adventist. And, and, and that is, that was a critical transition for me because I said, you know what, like, what do I feel like Jesus and the Bible is saying to me about anything, whether it's social issues Mm -hmm. or theology or what have you. And then what is Adventism saying? And I always want to ensure that my Adventism is being funneled through my understanding of Christianity and not that my Christianity is being funneled through my understanding of Adventism. If that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, these, these, these identities that people can hold, they can hold on to this denominational identity mm-hmm. um, or, or you're saying I'm like, you're holding on to this larger Christian Jesus focused identity and then moving to Adventism for like, a, like a supplementary kind of reading on, on certain things as well. But you're not as wrapped up as an identity with this specific denomination as you are with the larger, broader church of Christianity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm going to link these two things because I think we're leading there quite well, but can you unpack this clickbait title for me? White Jesus as white supremacist. What, what does that mean? Man. So the first thing that comes to my mind is that I genuinely believe that American culture created, um, a fictional Christ. Um, I feel like you can kind of track from art history through mm-hmm. um, to contempt to the conti- the contemporary moment and see where Christ becomes white, so that previously in like let's say medieval art, uh, Jesus mm-hmm. is depicted as like a ray of light, 
right? So like okay. he might not be raced in interesting ways. Whereas once you get to around the 1500s, um, he starts to take form. Um, and at that time, it wasn't so much that he was raced because race as a social construction did not exist yet. So what was happening was that mm-hmm. Jesus was taking on the form of the painters. So whatever physical appearance the painter had, right. that's the that's the appearance that Jesus had. So did nobody have a problem with that? So when, so when yeah. you're saying raced, yeah. you're talking about a like a, a grouping of people who uh, is it is it beyond representing physical attributions like it like when you're when you're using the word raced mm-hmm. define that one for me so it actually it is about the physical attributions but i think it's also attached to the social moment right so for example there's a there's a particularly okay. famous painting here in the states called the warner salmon's head of christ the head of christ okay. by warner salmon um is a very uh, Germanic white Jesus. He, I don't mean this to be facetious, Conrad. He looks exactly like you. Okay. <laughs> well, of, I didn't want to bring it up, listen, but uh, uh, I bet he had a good mustache as well. Yeah, I'm. I'm telling you, he. He. It was great. And so he's got the blonde hair. He's got the blue eyes. He's got this kind of like alabaster. The way that people describe it is like alabaster skin. Um, right. and so this is kind of created in, uh, I believe it was 1961. Um, and this is at the height of, you know, like civil unrest. <laughs> right. And so, uh-huh. um, or no, not 19, I think it was 1930 something. And so I think it was actually in yeah. the middle of the world wars with Hitler. And so while you're dealing with this kind of social unrest and people are trying to understand, um, value of certain bodies and peoples, you then have this individual kind of create this image of Jesus that is a mm-hmm. like major detraction from anything that he could have historically looked like. So is this this idea of saying, is is the person who, who kind of painted that knowingly or unknowingly when they paint, when he, he paints someone white blonde blue eyes that specifically depicts a type of culture but also whilst trying to depict a god Mm -hmm. in a way is that painting saying this is our god and god is like this and so for you to be holy or or to seek god properly you must like become like this. I think that that's in some sense. And I think this is where I give Warner Salmon just like some slight credit. Cause I don't know him. And I haven't mm-hmm. done any biographical research into his personal life, but what I can say is that the historical cultural trajectory that his painting went on basically was like the head of Christ became a literal depiction of Jesus culturally in America uh-huh. so that it became uh-huh. the most distributed, most <clears throat> prolific painting of Christ. Pastors were preaching at the time that, you know, you should have printed images of this and hold it in your wallet. Um, it was a painting that was hung in, you know, black and white Christian churches um, right. so that it got to the point where like black people and white people for, for decades saw this as this is what Jesus looks like. And so it became this kind of uh-huh. like cultural 
representation and it became replicated and it's in the stained glass windows and it's on all of your, you know, uh, church paraphernalia, right? So it's like, if I pull out, you know, for my denomination, you know, if I pull out my Sabbath school lesson, right? The Jesus Mm. and all the disciples and everybody that's depicted on the cover are going to look exactly like this. And it was Mm. just prolific throughout several denominations. So I think that because of that, I think that um, regardless of on what the author or not the author, but whatever the artist intended, um, what culture ended up doing is culture ended up making that image, the actual image of Christ. And I think that that is because white supremacy suggested and at that time was creating arguments around the purity of the white race. There was constant conversation about the superiority of whiteness, but specifically the superiority of a whiteness that is blonde haired, blue eyed, pale skinned. And so even if you are Italian or Irish, even if you are a white that is slightly deviant, um, that is a whiteness that is not represented in, in this image of Jesus. Um, and so that's why I feel mm-hmm. like, I feel like culture and the, the, the philosophical kind of ideology of the time kind of partnered with the mass distribution of that image ultimately created our clickbait title that white Jesus is a white supremacist. Because at that point, this very fake untrue image of Jesus now becomes the foundation and this idea that this is what Jesus looks like. And it, and it soon also becomes a place of a, a point of harm because for persons that are like myself, that were black during that time, we were actively being lynched by people that looked like that Jesus that we were, that we had a painting of mm. in our personal homes or in our black churches. Mm. And so it was, it, mm. it became very difficult to kind of distinguish like white people from divinity because of, because of how the two had become merged in this, this depiction of a white Christ. Wow. So there's this, you're talking about this level of, um, ingraining almost the shape of authority, like with Mm -hmm. that, with that simple, with the simple depiction of a white Jesus, it's a, it's a, it's and it's hard to say an attempt whether it was intentional or not the, right. the effect was still there mm-hmm. of saying that authority comes from god if you're like america is a very openly like christian country and and probably much of europe you know catholic as well to have this depiction of a of, of if god is the authority and you have depicted the god as jesus as being white blue-eyed blonde hair mm-hmm. then it's this then this is it's an implicit journey of authority Correct. that tells people where your authority comes from and your authority should come from this, these white power structures and these white people. And then I guess there's a whole other level of like abuse, not only the physical abuse, but the abuse of going, well, if this Jesus type person is lynching me, maybe I'm like lynchable or maybe that's okay. Or maybe like, it, like it result, it seems to like be a part of the picture, but it's this invisible part that, that, is is not like easily identified yeah yeah it's it's that implicit psychological effect that i think is it ultimately even links back to kind of the social justice theology right because if i can't see 
oppressed people in Christ. If all I see when I look at Jesus is I see this authority, I see this person of privilege and power, this individual who um, doesn't seem to have connection to um, poverty or to uh, racism or, or different things like that, right? You know, because, you know, I feel like not only did, did America make Jesus white, but we made Jesus American. Like, we've we've actively right. like given jesus like american citizenship and you know he has a he's just a very interesting kind of fictional creation and so because of that then there are other things that get left out of his narrative so that if you are a person who is black and you your ancestors were enslaved if you are an indigenous person and your ancestors were exterminated or if you are poor if you are homeless if you are you know, if you're individuals that are marginalized and experience a lot of oppression, then it's like, well, I can't see any of that in Jesus. And so because I can't see that in Jesus, I struggle to be able to believe that he actually cares about those things happening to me. And so mm -hmm. it's like, be because not only does, do I not see it in him, but the people on the earth that do look like him are suggesting that this kind of stuff doesn't matter. And they are actually perpetuating the violence. So like at some level, I think, um, I think that's, that's also part of the concern. By making Jesus white mm -hmm. and, and you, 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 and making him this, this fictional, at least in this context, an American figure, you, you, you say it, you, you're saying that you're pulling Jesus from his context and that context was he was an oppressed, marginalized Jew himself. He was under the boot of the Roman Empire. His, the Jewish people wanted to revolt, rebel. They were, they were kind of oppressed by empire. And it's sounding like as, as modern America and the West in general pulls Jesus into the modern context and makes him white physically, but also culturally. Mm -hmm. If you make Jesus culturally American, yeah. then all of a sudden you are the empire. It's kind of like making Jesus like Roman. That's it. And uh, yeah, like that's what you're saying, making him this fictional creation mm -hmm. that um, pulls Jesus from his context. And then now we're missing something about the, the, the Jesus character. Is that, is that kind of absolutely, it? absolutely. And that, and that, that fictional creation then also serves as a tool for further destruction. It for, serves as a further tool of the state because it's like you have, uh -huh. you have clearly created something for the purpose of control, for the purpose of, um, further oppression, right? And and so Jesus, this, this fictional Jesus becomes a tool of that. And so the consequence mm -hmm. of that is that you have individuals, right? Some black, black Americans in this country who want absolutely nothing to do with Christianity because mm -hmm. they believe that Christianity is a white man's religion and that Jesus is a figment of the imagination. And that mm -hmm. furthermore, that Jesus is somewhat something that was created for the sole purpose of abusing, destroying, traumatizing black bodies. So, black and you're saying that's largely true. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I no, I disagree with that. Like, I, I, I think that right. I think that the construction of a white Jesus, absolutely, that's fully true. That's exactly what has happened, and I completely understand why black people want nothing to do with Christianity. But that's not what I believe about Christianity itself. I believe that Christianity is an Eastern religion that moved to the West, like every other religion did, but that Christianity is an Eastern religion about a brown Jesus who grew up a Jew in Palestine under Roman Empire and in his 30s was homeless because he was walking around um, preaching about the coming kingdom of God. And upon his death and resurrection, his followers then spread the ideas of his preachings and teachings and then the denomination or the religion rather that was created out of that work and thought is Christianity. And so that's why I don't, I don't feel like Christianity is inherently white in any way, shape or form, nor do I believe that it is a creation of white Europeans within colonialism or anything of that nature. I believe that Christianity was co-opted during colonialism co-opted during European imperialism for the purpose, for the nefarious purposes of enslavement, um, exploitation, extermination, and the like. And so because these individuals and entities of power had to figure some way to exercise their nefarious desires for the purpose of conquest, um, rulership, kingship, et cetera, et cetera, they had to create some something or a, a narrative about Jesus. They had to manipulate the narrative of Jesus in order to be able to to do the evil things that they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I'm hearing this when you describe uh, the black people that are saying, I want nothing to do with Christianity. This thing's like a weapon of colonialism. It's a weapon of Western empire. It's a weapon of control and all these things. I'm hearing you say yes and correct it's, so there's there's people who would reject that idea reject christianity altogether and you say listen i get it because it's what your accusations are largely like you would agree with as you move through it but then you also then say but then is that what is meant by christianity correct. and so you still find it compelling mm -hmm. for you to go i still think or in fact once you understand this Jesus, you would you would perhaps say now I'm guessing so correct me where where I go off mm -hmm. you would perhaps say that once you understand the brown Jesus growing up in a marginalized society uh, like loving people in that context as an oppressed person right. that's a Jesus that you find very compelling because of your position within modern American society today absolutely. So w would you almost go as far as to say Jesus would be more at home in the marginalized black community than we put than the uh, empirical dominant culture of white American Christianity we see today? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I most certainly I, I, I see Jesus as a marginalized figure in scripture and so because of that, mm -hmm. I see, I see that my entry point into 
serving and saving marginalized people in the contemporary moment is is literally exemplified in his life so that mm-hmm. like my approach to Christianity, my understanding of Christianity becomes much different because he has been better historically placed. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's an interesting element to this that I think everyone knows is aware of, has a handle on, mm-hmm. but its application I think is seems different. That the marginalization of Jesus and Christianity itself, like the history of Christianity as it's come up through history, is always one of like trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Like it's this marginalized um uh, religion and it's this marginalized group of people beginning with Jesus the Jew uh, in the Middle East and then moving up as it moves through the Roman Empire until it's finally like adopted and becomes the religion of empire. Yeah. But this marginalization aspect seems very interesting because I'm witnessing it now mm-hmm. and maybe it's being politicized and maybe there's these other motives of it, but, but I'm seeing it net like the story of marginalization I, I feel like many, uh, let's say, evangelical white Christians would say, we are we are marginalized. They would say, we are like the oppressed. We are like, I, I hear it a lot in like the Donald Trump rhetoric that is, you know, like we're being pushed out. And so this marginalization, I think everyone admits mm-hmm. is a key cornerstone of Christianity. Mm-hmm. But, but it sounds like where is it applied is... Who who is the questions seem to be uh, like that I'm uh, find myself asking is who is empire yeah. if we draw if we're drawing these parallels to Jesus who is empire because empire was the Romans mm-hmm. so who are, who are the Romans today and who are the Jewish people today uh, they they seem to be the two questions and and much of evangelical white America would say we are the Israelites we are the Jewish people like we're being oppressed our freedom of speech all of these things so it's this it's almost this battle for marginalization mm-hmm. in order to because I guess it's being recognized that marginalization is the key to Jesus mm-hmm. if you, you can't have a Jesus figure without his marginalization I don't know take, go where you want with with those thoughts oh man no there's so much there that's so good so this is what first comes to my mind. I really appreciate yeah. the, com- the the conversation that you're bringing up of, you know, white individuals who are saying, Claudia, I have no privilege. Um, in fact, Oprah yes. has way more privilege than me, right? There are some blacks who are more educated, go. more wealthy, have yeah. access to more opportunities than I have. So how can you look me in the face and, and say to me in my poverty that my whiteness has given um, some kind of a barrier or inhibitor to uh-huh. these black people who obviously are in a much better socioeconomic position than I am. It is for this reason that I believe mm-hmm. that empire is capitalism. I'm so uh-huh. glad we can have this conversation, Conrad. I never get to talk about this. I Oh, well, you're in the right place. Great. Empire is capital is capitalism. Race in okay. my understanding is a social construction for the purpose of capitalism. It is a tool underneath capitalism. From the standpoint of capitalism requires that there be a wealthy and that there be a poor. So in order to maintain an extreme wealth gap where, let's say, 
between one to 10% of the population control all of the econ- all of the economy and the 90% mm-hmm. are then controlled by that one to 10%. In order to maintain that, mm-hmm. I have to create a social entity that will so divide them and create so much, um, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Like dissension amongst them that they will not unite as the 90% Hmm. to overthrow the one to 10. And so you have poor white people and poor black people and poor Latinos and poor Asians and poor whoever's Hmm. and everybody is harping on their individualism and on their differences, mm. particularly by way of race, culture, heritage. And so they're not seeing that this is an economic war more than it is a racial one because race is a figment. Mm. It is a fiction that has been created for economic purposes. Like for example, historically race was created um, particularly during um, slavery times because what was happening the slaves and the Irish were both working for these brand new British pilgrims, if you would. All right. And so what ended up happening was the Irish are being looked down upon. They are being um, exploited, but also beaten. Um, you know, pseudoscience is being written about the Irish, about how their brains don't like the, like the exact same stuff we see and studied about black people was happening to the Irish. And so while that's mm. happening, what, what they said was, man, you know what? We've got the Irish, but we have access to more manual labor if we were to capture African bodies. So mm-hmm. if I now have an African body and an Irish body, what now is the difference? Because the issue that the, they had with the Irish was that they were Catholic. So now it is, well, the Irish are becoming Christian. And there's a rule that you cannot enslave a Christian. So if I can't enslave a Christian, the Irish are becoming Christian, then we don't have an issue with the Irish anymore. So now we're now we create, now we move away from nationalism to race. So that now the uh-huh. Irish are a part of this white fictional system, and Africans are now identified as black. And mm-hmm. so I am now, this isn't about religion. It isn't about nation state. Now this is about the color of your skin. And I can now enslave you based on that. So I, so in essence, they literally created, they literally created race for the sole purpose of justifying enslavement. And what was slavery in America at that time, or, or, or even uh, within the Caribbean? At that time, it was purely about economic surplus. It was, we are building an economy that is far greater than Europe. And on this journey to be better than Britain, we need to enslave. So I now am going to create a social construct that is Blackness so that for the purpose of that of that work and that has only mm-hmm. magnified and intensified over the years and so that's why i always say empire who we are against is capitalism and white supremacy mm-hmm. racism all of that is 
is merely an, an, is an instrument, a creation of, or maybe not of, um, but for the purposes of maintaining capitalism. We have to keep the 90% in poverty. And we have to do that mm-hmm. by keeping them divided. One of the reasons why, if you look in American history, uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. was uh, preaching and talking about racial unity and integration, nobody was really upset. I mean, people were upset. White people were upset, but they, but it wasn't that crazy. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 68 when he was talking about economic mm. unity. At that time, mm. what he had effectively done was he had effectively gotten poor white sanitation workers to unite with poor black sanitation workers. And they realized that they all had the same problem. Mm. And so then they came together and said, I see your issue is not that I'm white or that your issue isn't that I'm black. Our Mm. issue is something much larger. And the moment that he started dealing with the economic injustices in America that are rooted in capitalism, that is when he was assassinated. So as far as I'm concerned, I firmly believe that the the empire is capitalism and we're all just scrambling around um, holding on to these fictional identities, these, these fictional labels that empire has given us for the purpose of maintaining their financial standing in the world. Interesting. I never, I never thought it would end up here, but I'm liking, I'm finding this direction. Me neither. Yeah, this is good. (laughs) Just to, uh, just because I'm hyper aware of the political discourse and I'm just hearing a certain people who might uh, identify with the political right. Anytime someone invokes the word capitalism and particularly in your context in America, you get this, uh, very strong response well what do you want communism or socialism so just for those people who reduce and i teach economics at a school and i'm like i don't think you know what communism or socialism is if you're using them interchangeably but just for those people who might reduce this down to a what you want to be venezuela or you want to be russia or china or america just for that for that kind of uh angle of coming at it when you're using the term capitalism Mm -hmm. what do you mean because i'm assuming you're not saying yeah let's let's get like chairman xi jinping over here because we don't like having a democracy right that's (laughs) i feel like that's how some people might hear it so so when you're using the word capitalism in this sense Mm -hmm. how are you using it and and maybe what people would the, the general question is, well, what's the alternative? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I don't really want to go off into that because I think that's an either-or dichotomy that I think misses all the nuance in the middle. So just uh, talk around yeah. your use of the word capitalism because I, I assume you're not um, promoting a political and economic system where, every, where everybody – owns the means of production and everybody works equally and everybody hands out little paychecks in this idealized version of communism. So what are you kind of talking about? I so appreciate that, Conrad. I have been called a communist. (laughs) So, (laughs) Well, you're in America. You don't have to do much to cop that label. Clearly. uh, Because I'm like, I I was with you. The the moment somebody said that to me, I was like, 
oh, you don't know what communism is. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's fine. That's it's okay. Right. That's it's, it's okay. Um, so when I yeah. so, so um, when I think when I use the term, um, I am not saying in the sense that everyone should have the opportunity to. Uh, generate income based on individualized work, right? Like, so if you want to be self-made, that's one one of the greatest things about capitalism is if you want to be self-made, if you go out there, you work hard enough, you, you know, do whatever, you can, you can create your own wealth. And so right. people want to be able to have access to that. Yeah. I'm not against that at all. Uh, and you're okay with that. You're not saying, and you get $100, and you get $100, and hey, you got 200 Give me back that 100 you, You're not advocating this. Yes, okay. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely think that if, if based on, and I think this is this is the logic of the right, right you know, um, if you work hard, you deserve compensation for that work. If you... Mm. Um, are a master or an expert at something and you become particularly proficient um, and you grow and you scale, I believe that your compensation should be able to grow and scale along with you. So I, I don't have an issue with that. And you're not against that. Not you a, have no issues with that. No issues with okay. that. No yeah. problems with that. Yeah. Definitely want to keep that. So then this critique of capitalism as you're using it, how are you using it and critiquing it then? How I'm using it is from the standpoint of there is a tendency within the system or the structure of capitalism that there is a one to 10% of individuals who, because of the wealth that they have attained, now actively control the political system. And within their control of the political hmm. system, they have a tendency to continue to mar to keep people marginalized. Mm-hmm. So what's happening mm-hmm. is, is man, I, we can only allow so many to break through certain economic barriers or levels so that in so mm. that in order for us to ensure that everybody doesn't become a millionaire right because the world doesn't have that kind mm-hmm. of money right so everybody can't become a millionaire so what then are the things that we need to put in place structurally, systemically to ensure that everyone doesn't become a millionaire, regardless of the color of their skin. Now, we mm-hmm. do have some racist thoughts and ideas about certain people. And so there are certain communities that we are going to inflict things on harsher and in different ways than we do in poor white communities, right? Uh-huh. So. Yeah. There are so you're gonna have redlining, and all yeah. and all redlining is is the is a political system systematic way in which people draw red lines around communities to ensure that they don't get access to certain resources, funding, etc. So we're gonna draw yeah. these red lines around the certain communities that are predominantly black and brown. Uh, we're going mm-hmm. to. Um, set up school zones that are based on zip codes and districts so that if you live Mm -hmm. in a certain zip code, if you live in a certain district, the county or the state will give you a certain amount of resources or not so that you are inevitably setting up some communities to succeed and others to fail. Right. Um, And so I think that that's what I find to be injustice. And I think that rather than having a conversation about, 
how do I say this? Rather than rather than suggesting that one would upend all of capital of capitalism, that's not. I would never say that anywhere because the likelihood of that is extremely unlikely, and I don't think that that's necessary. I think that what is necessary. I think what we're asking for is we're seeing that there are resources that there is access that there's opportunities are there ways that we can do a better job at at least making access and opportunities and resources available to everyone and then acknowledge that not everybody's going to put in the same work not everybody is interested like meritocracy can still be enacted within within a kind of capitalism that does take care of all people's basic human rights um mm. And that acknowledges that even if you do all of that, all of humanity isn't going to do it because some people are just flat out lazy. But right now, mm -hmm. to suggest that, you know, to make the argument that the people that people are lazy right now in this current structure, I just feel like is a bit inadequate, considering the fact that you mm -hmm. have not yet structurally or systematically set anything up to ensure that any disenfranchised or marginalized person has access to opportunity or resources. Mm -hmm. It's, it's to put this non-controversially in a way that I think it's what I'm hearing is n not controversial. And in some sense you would agree with many on the right that have this ideal of capitalism saying you should be compensated in accordance to your effort and your like ingenuity and things like that and you're like i'm i'm really cool with that but the capitalism that you're critiquing and defining you're critiquing something that doesn't represent that you're kind of describing a system where the wealth has accumulated so much that now people can't be compensated according to their hard work and ingenuity so so in that sense i could i could find a quite an easy political alignment in this sense of like once we once we disperse the reductionistic and misunderstandings around communism v capitalism and how they're just weapons thrown at each other and we break it down and we go i think many people on the political right religious non-religious right would hear you say listen i want you know, I want people to have opportunity and be compensated in proportion to their effort and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that's like a founding, like uh, politically right ideal. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's that level of this. It's not very controversial, despite how it sounds when you say the empire is capitalism. But when you when you're saying that, I'm I'm. Uh, I'm thinking of a quote by Russell Brand. I was listening to one of his podcasts once and he said, what this system does and it's what you're critiquing as well, this empire, this, and you're not saying, you're, you're taking empire beyond a country. You're taking right. empire to a, to a system that transcends borders and it can't be nailed down. It doesn't have a flag. Um, and it's this system that pits the precarious against the vulnerable and it says you guys fight it out because the like the precarious are like man we're going to slip from this like middle class and we know that the, this the middle class is slowly shrinking especially in america it's like the gap is growing more and more and more and so there's this kind of infighting and you're saying race has been weaponized and created to essentially for me to go well who can i blame they're black and then they the black people might look over and go well no no they're white and so if we just kind of focus on this level of like cultural and 
physical differences, then we can just infight amongst there. But you're saying empire is this bigger thing yeah. that has that is using that to maintain power and maintain a power structure. Absolutely. Is that roughly That's, the picture you painted? That is the exact picture that I personally believe. And I believe that because yeah. I just feel like if you have if you have people who could work a full-time job and still can't pay all of their bills, but the right. CEOs or owners of the company within which they work make billions of dollars mm -hmm. something about that seems a bit unjust now it's mm -hmm. not about am i are you as the ceo or the owner being paid commiserately for your expertise your ingenuity and such uh it's more so that it's it seems as though you are now taking advantage of the work time and input of others so that you can can accumulate a, a, a level of wealth that does not take the needs of others into consideration right i'm i'm and i'm not surprised that we end and well i'm not surprised that we enter into a economic and political discussion when we begin with religion because this is what i find it's very interconnected, especially yeah. if you are like when you define Christianity in Jesus in his context, where well, you can't you can't pull Jesus out of the boot of the Roman Empire. You can't pull him out from that context. And then when you transpose it here, well, you need to find like, okay, who would be the empire? Who would be these things? And so it seems the obvious place that we end or we end up at a political and religious discussion. Yeah. But I want to I wanna look at like your journey to this idea. Growing up in an Adventist, um, in an Adventist church, was it a predominantly white Adventist church, black Adventist church? Were you? Yeah. So I, I it was a mixture of both. So what would what, okay. what ended up happening was I went to all well I won't say all white, but I went to predominantly white Adventist schools. So schools that were uh -huh. run and taught by white people and had predominantly white students. But then on Saturday, I would be in a black Adventist church. And then I would be around my black Adventist family. And so there was like conflict <laughs> or at least it was like internal. It wasn't external. It was like an internal form of being like, you know, you're at home and it's like black paintings on the wall and black books on the shelf. And then you go to school and you don't hear about anybody black ever at any point whatsoever. Talk to me about, I guess, that conflict in that journey, because what's interesting to me is we began the discussion with this idea of white Jesus as white supremacist and this idea of how religion, I suppose, has ended up being, and at least your religion as well, hang on, I'll just, and at least your religion as well has been almost co-opted. Yeah. To not represent, you're saying it's not representing the, the Jesus of Nazareth mm -hmm. in the Middle East. Yeah. And, and that's kind of your, where your journey begins in the Christian context. Yeah. And so talk to me about that conflict that you had between like white like Adventism and black Adventism. Sure. And then perhaps the gateway drug idea that began to unravel yeah. this white supremacist Jesus idea, like 
it might have been an idea that led to this. Like, mm-hmm. like what was it? You mentioned at the top, mm-hmm. like Adventist eschatology, perhaps preventing some Adventists from truly looking at the social justice arm of who Jesus was. Yeah. Um, go where you like with that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh. My grandmother went to like Malcolm X College on the west side of Chicago. Um, my dad is really from the south side of Chicago. So, like I was saying, I really kind of grew up in kind of like a black incubator, even if we remove the Adventism out of it. So, it's like there were um, black books on my grandparents' bookshelf, uh, you know there's only black art hanging on the walls in my parents, in my mom's house right now. Um, and so kind of like being in that kind of an artistic aesthetic space and having books at my house, like, you know, the 100 first African Americans, you know, so Jackie Robinson's and all these people. Um, and so it's like, man, okay, there is this long history of black contributions to thought, athletics, healthcare, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those, and so then I would be in that and then I would go to school and there would be no mention of these individuals ever. Um, and even February mm-hmm. would come around and that's supposed to be black history month. And February would be like, like our black history month would be like a day. It'd be like a, an assembly. It's a, it'd be like a one, one Friday <laughs> assembly <laughs> program. And like the only two figures they would talk about were uh, Harriet Tubman and Martin Luther King. And so there was like this like mm-hmm. quick shift. It was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were enslaved. It was just a couple minutes. And then like Martin, Martin Luther <laughs> King came and he, t- he fixed it all. He fixed everything. And um, yeah. so we all- Thanks Martin. We all, exactly. Thanks Martin. We all love each other. Listen, look at us. We're all in school together. Isn't this beautiful? Martin That's right. fixed yeah. it. Um, and yeah. so that would really be kind of the end of the conversation. And so I don't think that I was necessarily aware of it as a kid, but yes. there was like a disturbance inside, but I couldn't like articulate mm. it. Um one particular thing that happened that really rubbed me the wrong way was I was in a music class and um, my music teacher, of course, was white. And so every year we would do these multicultural fairs and everybody had to wear their traditional garb. And so my te- my music teacher every year, I mean, from second grade to eighth grade, she was like, Claudia, where is your garb? And I would always say to her, I'm American. And so oh, she's oh, poor little Claudia. Conrad. My heart breaks. I'm American. <laughs> yeah, but you're not like American like you know. <laughs> <laughs> so this music oh. teacher is literally like, but where are your parents from? I was like, Chicago. <laughs> she was like, but where are your Chicago. where are your grandparents from? Detroit. But where are I'm wearing a Michael here? Jordan jersey. Come on. Right? And she's like, I'm like Georgia. And she's like, okay, well, about after that. And it's like, at, I was like maybe what, 10, 11? I didn't know the kind of conversation that I was having with this woman at this point. But I literally went back and back oh. and back and back. And I remember being a kid and I said to her and I was like, I literally can't go any further back. If you go any further back, 
I'm on a slave ship. So like that's, that's right. like, <laughs> would you like me to come to the multicultural oh. fair and chains? Oh. I can do that for you Jeez. if you would like. <laughs> Okay. Wow. Actually, that would be a like an interesting statement art piece. Right. That you could definitely. I really oh wish my God. Yeah, my I heart did breaks that. for little Claudia. Yeah. Man. Be like, yeah, I don't know because I was taken. Thank you. Happy multicultural affair. Oh, <laughs> oh man. You know? Oh wow. And so, as a, like a little kid, you imagine like I'm just imagining because you don't have all these words and these ideas and these abstract like systems around you Mm -hmm. you just all I feel like the sense that that you like I would receive from that is like I'm not American this is what I hear every year when my music teacher says where's your garb you just hear what do you mean I'm not American and then you actually like maybe internalize some level of like you don't belong Yeah. And what was hard was because even the white students, I think they, even the white American students, they didn't dress up in American clothing, but it was like, oh, well, my dad's from Germany. My mom is, you know, my, my grandfather's from Poland. And so people, Uh they had these, this kind of like immediate connection to, to other European countries that they could name. And so they put that on. And so she's like, but you have to know where you're from. Like where in Africa are your ancestors from? And I'm like, that ain't how colonialism worked. (laughs) Like that's right. That's right. It's kind of not how the party went down. So, and I guess it's her ignorance was more so as an adult. (laughs) Go ahead. Yeah, like, and it's this this implicit, like, Africa is a country, you know? It's just, you know, it's all this, it's all just one country and you just are from there. It's like saying, like, where are you from? Oh, Europe. Like, just just the continent, Europe. Like, it's it's not really, mm-hmm. like, but you can you can see that almost your music teacher had has that idea of being like, oh, well, clearly, like, Africa somewhere. So that's... Mm-hmm. I guess, close enough? I'm not sure, right? Yeah, and this idea that, well, I mean, just put anything African on. Just and that, yeah, That's right. Anything. That's right. I mean, there's 50. And that's like saying, if I'm... Whole, if I'm whole, there's 52 <laughs> whole countries on the continent, yeah. you know, over 2,000 yeah. languages. But, I mean, I'm sure if you just put anything African on, it'll work, right? Like, I mean, it'll, that's, you'll, that's right. you'll be represented, right? And it's like... yeah. If you're from Europe, you can just uh, like, yeah, your parents are, are British, but here's a later who's and put that on, like put that German thing on close enough. Europe, right? Europe. <laughs> yeah. So it was funny because we would have this back and forth for years because she was my music teacher for years. Oh. So I'm telling you, Conrad, every year she would bring this And up. you're coming dressed as a hamburger. In like with a truck. <laughs> after a while, I, I started getting real smart with her because I knew she was coming. And so after a while, I was just like, yeah. what? What? No. Still oh. haven't done an AncestryDNA.com uh, situation. No. <laughs> yeah. Still haven't done a 23 right. and me. Mind you, it's like 1998. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. so... Yeah. Um, now what ended up happening was she would give me costumes from other countries to wear. So I would, so I could not, I could not wear anything American. 
I could not oh. be American on the stage. Everybody had to have a, a country that was oh, represented. Oh, right. Had to be a production. Had to be a right. production. Okay. So there were there was a year that I wore, you know, like a Korean garb. There was a year I wore a Chinese oh. garb. Like, whatever you she You were just filling find. in for the lack of ethnicity. <laughs> you were just the placeholder. Listen, oh, whatever okay. she could find, you know, she would put it on me because she was completely un- unwilling to just let me come as, a, as an American. Uh. Um, and so I think that, you know, when you have experiences like that, um, it's like race, religion, identity, politics, you know, um, socioeconomic status, like all of it just gets merged into this weird pot of stuff that is kind of inextricably linked. Uh, religiously as you growing up real, like in the Adventist system. Yeah. What was there a particular religious idea or was there any sort of idea that you accepted or rejected that, that allowed you to unravel this, I suppose, construct that was handed to you called race and difference. And this, and this also like, how did you begin to unravel the fact that, hang on, Jesus was not white and was not American. Mm-hmm. So I think that like growing up in my black house, I think I there was like a, an understanding. We didn't really talk about it. Um, so it's like whenever, you know, you would see white Jesus felt in Sabbath school or, um, you know, white Jesus comes through on the lesson study in my baptismal classes, in my Bible class, like all of, all of the paraphernalia. Um, I literally looked at it and it was like, oh, well, I mean, like uh, white supremacy, that's why. <laughs> and literally just like, even as a kid, just process it as like, oh yeah, like that's racism, like on the page. So it is what it is. Just keep moving on. Now, oh, okay. what I ended up doing, at least in terms of kind of like unraveling it, like intellectually in more depth, that I believe happened in my master's program. So when I graduated from an Adventist undergraduate school, I ended up going to Georgetown. Now Georgetown is a school out here in the States that is Jesuit. So when I got into the school, immediately a couple people told me, they were like, well, Claudia is about to go to school with the Antichrist and she's going to be going to mass. And, you know, everyone had uh, a yes, negative right. cons- connotation. A lot of fear in the Adventist world of the Catholic world. Correct. Yes. And so um, when I got there, to say that my mind was open would be a gross understatement because I would be in mm-hmm. classes where my teacher was Catholic uh, my classmate was was transgender. Another classmate was atheist. Another classmate was Jewish. Another classmate was Muslim. I was Christian. Uh, you know, and, you know, if I keep going around the room, you just got different people. And and that's me just naming the religions. That the the teacher was a white Catholic, right? You know, so it's like then you can go even further mm-hmm. down into gender and and race and you know different things like this or whatever. Um, and so. Like having all those people around a table reading uh, Derrida and Nietzsche and um, all of this kind of like philosophical, literary uh, theory, critical theory, alongside a lot of fiction, 
Charles Dickens. We read Darwin. Like anything written, we probably read it. And so having to, because my master's is in English. I probably should have said that. So, so because of that, we read anything that was written and we're all breaking it down. And so to get to have the opportunity to do that with people like that of so many different mindsets, concepts, ideas, it just, immediately I received language for what was happening within my white Adventist context um, that I did not previously have. So that before I could, before that I couldn't, I didn't, I, all I had was this is racist. Adventism is racist. This is white supremacy. I know what that is. Okay, whatever. But then, you know, once you got, once I got into critical race theory and, and philosoph, you know, philosophy and all this other kind of stuff, then it just opens up to, oh, this is, oh, this is different. No, there's so much more to this conversation in colonialism and and empire and power dynamics than is just white people don't like black people. Like that's not what this is about at all. Like not even a little bit is this about white people don't like black people. It is much deeper than that. Um, and so that is, th- that was when I started to get the language for, um, understanding how this system is operating, what I don't like about this system. And that's also when I began to read a lot of black theology. Um, and so that's when I got introduced into black theology, started reading a lot of black theology. Um, and then that's when I started getting into introduced to the concept of black Jesus. (laughs) Um, and so then it's like, okay, now we have theologians. Now we have artists. Now we have thinkers who are trying to, rebut this long-term colonialist picture of white Jesus now with a new picture of a black Christ. And this black Christ is not so much the idea that Jesus looks like me or anybody in, uh, that he would be black as defined by American standards, but more so that he is an oppressed body that is brown because I guess technically I'm not, because technically I'm not black either. So he is an oppressed body that is brown. That was, as we discussed earlier, someone who experienced the foot of the empire on him as well as saw it enacted in the lives of others. And, and in his ministry, they literally kind of reframed his ministry within that kind of a political historical framework so that at that point, Jesus talking to the woman in Samaria um, is not just him talking to some hoe at a well. And now it is Jesus is disrupting the social custom that men don't talk to women. He's disrupting the social custom that Jews don't talk to Samaritans. So at that point, his ministry to the woman at the well Um, in Samaria becomes a moment of social justice, of racial equity, because he now is inserting himself into a conversation that is breaking down the ethnic barriers that existed during that time. So really, it's like, how can I, Black theology is like, how can I situate Jesus historically in his time so that I can better understand 
how he engaged with the social political entities of his time because they fundamentally believed that the gospel was more than just a personal piety. It's Jesus came, Jesus couldn't have. And I think that's what white theology is, whether it's Adventist or not. Evangelical white theology says the gospel of Jesus Christ is about I sinned and it's a spiritual issue. And so a God came into the earth so that he could rectify all of the spiritual wrongs in the earth. Black theology Mm -hmm. comes along and says, yes, we're not discounting the spiritual element, but what we want to add is that there is also social, physical, emotional, um, political, entities as well that Jesus is also coming in to physically rectify and upend. And if we properly situate Jesus within his historical moment, then we can adequately see how he addressed these issues. Mm-hmm. So this to you is not an opposition. The op- the oppositional nature of race, I'm hearing you say, that's, that's something used to distract from us finding out who the real oppressor is. And so when when you're talking about a white Jesus v. a black Jesus, it's not the white v. black Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's the, there's, there is a picture that uh, Western white cultures painted of Jesus as a result of various different factors. And it brought to humanity some level of benefit in, in accordance to what you're describing is like the personal s- salvation in that, and, and when you look at like Western culture, it's individualism, right? Like it, like the value of the individual. And so it, it kind of makes sense that exists within that frame. And that, sure, there's lots of good things to come from that. The, the fact that the West at least says it values individual human rights Correct. and not just like you, ut- not pure utilitarian being like, no, no, the in- individual is still valuable, even if there's just one of them. That's a very like... You could say that would be like maybe like if we're if I'm using new concepts I've been unfamiliar with yeah. like a white Jesus idea, but uh-huh. then you're saying but there's also I'm good like black theology wants to add to that mm-hmm. and say now let's look at the context of impression the context of a of a black Jesus. Um, and, and the Christ represented in the oppressed people who are black and the social justice that comes out of that and the very like almost practical political implications is that is that what you, it's like this this contribution and progression forward of the larger christian narrative and it's not like a, it's not an oppositional thing absolutely yeah and it, it, it's not an either or i feel like yeah at least within my understanding and within my practice of of a black theology and, and christianity that is informed by black theology Um, I would say that it is not an either or it is a, I have found more to add to my Christianity so that I personally see my Christianity or my denominations iteration of Christianity as incomplete. Not that there is one side to be on or another side to be on, but that there is one iteration And if the iteration does not include these elements, then the iteration is incomplete without them. Okay. Do you think there is any particular 
as you reflect on your upbringing, do you think there is any particular, at least within the Adventist context, any doctrine or like eschatology, like end times ideas or anything that you think there's an understanding that limits you know, people's capacities, probably particularly white people's capacities in a religious context to grasp what you're talking about? I want to say no. I know that someone <laughs> probably is, you know, some of my friends, colleagues, followers that will probably watch this. They'll be like, Claudia, no, what? <laughs> no, yes. <laughs> no, yes, sis. There's plenty. Um, There's but, plenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but quite frankly, right, I, I'm, I'm just trying, I'm running through the doctrines in my head, right? I'm running through the theology mm. in my head and there's nothing in the theology. Well, like an that, interpretation. Right, that I think is wrong. You know, wrong. like maybe there's an understanding of a specific, because at the top you were talking about, this end times escapist theology that says, well, just sit tight and oh, Jesus that. will come yes, back. Yes, yes. Do you okay. know what I mean? Like, yeah, that I you, think I that's agree That's a particular with. understanding of it. Yeah, I oh, think, okay. yeah, yeah. I'm, I fully am with that. I think that I don't disagree with the, the, with the doctrine of the second coming. I do believe that Jesus okay. is going to physically come back to the earth and that he's going to kind of take people to heaven to live with him, right? We won't go down that rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. But uh, apart from that, what I think is what's different for me or the nuance that I have added to that theology for myself is that even though, right, I have this belief that God himself is going to physically come to the earth and remove humanity for a temporary period, right? So the, uh, Revelation teaches that Jesus returns, he takes humanity with him to heaven for a thousand years. And then he brings the new Jerusalem down to the earth so that humanity then now lives in a new earth that he has created. I don't disagree with any aspect of that theology where I diverge is that I do not think that simply because that is a reality that I know will exist at some point that I therefore have no, no, um, mandate to operate within the earth while waiting for that coming. So as I, as we talked about uh, uh, briefly in the beginning, right, there's the belief that, well, if he's coming, I don't have to fix anything. I don't have to engage anything. I don't have to do anything mm -hmm. because he's going to come, he's going to destroy it all. And then he'll rebuild everything and fix it himself. <clears throat> and so I don't have to engage. Conversely, right, there are non-Adventist theologies that suggest that Christ's coming is not going to be a physical one, but rather that it is going to be a spiritual iteration of the kingdom come through the lives of people. So this is why there are some Black Christians, not Adventists, who believe, I, I'll say it like this, who believe that you have to be deeply engaged in politics and social issues because we are the manifestation of the second coming. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't do these and things, you hold both of those you're saying, I, yes, I diverge. I diverge from the idea that there won't be a physical return to Christ. I disagree with that. I firmly believe he will return. Yeah where I, I stand with them is that I feel as though there is plenty, and I don't think that it's really even a stand with them. I think it's still on Adventism. I think 
in reading the gospel, I see in the text plenty of examples where Jesus very explicitly says, um, occupy till I come, uh, Matthew 24, where he talks about, um, when he returns, he's going to see those who are doing his will. Those who fed the hungry, clothed the naked, visited those who are in prison. Um, those who were thirsty, um, gave them to drink. Um, so at that moment, that's a very explicitly tangible, conversation to to meeting physical needs of people, right? But then when I also look in Luke 4 and I see Jesus is kind of at the beginning of his mission and ministry and he's in the synagogue, he comes out and he says, I, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to bring liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, right? So he, he goes through these lists from the beginning of Matthew all the way through John, where it's like, I'm physically healing people. I'm spiritually forgiving people and saving people, but I'm socially upending customs and traditions and orders that I find problematic. And I am also inter, uh, interceding in um, a very intimately political structure. Now, people always ask me, they say, Claudia, where in the world do you see Jesus dealing with anything political, right? This is where I see him dealing with things that are political. In the gospel of John, Jesus goes into the temple and he sees that the the religious leaders and the the money changers are selling uh, sacrifices for Passover. And so during this time, the Roman government and the Jewish church had actually come into cahoots. And what they were doing is they were charging taxes and such on sacrificial offerings. And they were charging these exuberant prices for doves, pigeons, lambs, etc. And so when Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple and he turns over all the tables, he drives out all of the animals, he pours out all of the money and all this stuff and makes a whip of cords and starts driving everybody out. And he says, do not make my house of prayer into a den of thieves. What he's saying in my understanding is that, hey, the Passover process or the Passover ceremony is supposed to be a moment where I can actually come into relationship with God. I can, I can remember, you know, the history of the Israelites being liberated from Egypt and I can remember who God was to them. And I can remember who God is to me in my liberation. And so in my, in my communion with God through this kind of ritual, this ceremony, this practice, I, I'm basically having a worship experience. And Jesus is like, hey, you're literally turning this, this worship experience into an, an economic um, form of oppression that is allowing only the wealthy to engage in the ceremony and the poor now are not able to engage in this kind of worship at all because they cannot afford it. And so in that you're moment, almost, Jesus just, you're almost, what you're almost like, le- like that's almost a, a, a very like uh, strong interpretation. That is a heavy critique of a, like a capital driven religious system, like a profiteering off religion. That's mm-hmm. like a very, uh, <laughs> that's something people could definitely sit with. Cause that's something that 
if the thing that made Jesus drive people out and and be like one of his only angry moments mm-hmm. was profiteering at the expense of poor people and religion, I think when we look at our current system and the way God may be invoked by certain people, it will will. Well, that's a whole nother thing. We'll and that's let, I'll why, sit that one yeah, there. Yeah, we'll sit that one there. And that's why I feel like so many, whether your thoughts are about race and racism, whether your thoughts are about the economy, whether your thoughts are about healthcare, whatever your thoughts are about, and you feel like Jesus has nothing to say about it or Jesus wasn't engaged in it, I genuinely uh, believe that your thought around that is rooted in bad theology. It is rooted in misinterpretations of the text. And so my thing... And would you say that misinterpretation comes from a strong position within a particular cultural perspective, like being very in the camp of of the the white Jesus perspective might lead... Mm -hmm to those interpretations that then limit some of these people within Adventism, say, Mm -hmm. to look at Jesus. Do you think these things that you're describing, that when you say them, they don't, they seem like not, they don't seem like a stretch at all. And, Mm -hmm. but do you think that there's something limiting within, say, the white Jesus construct that makes these political statements invisible? Because you're reading the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think that makes them invisible. But I also think that it makes the things that I've said uncomfortable for many. Uh So that like, I know that what I, my particular interpretation of Jesus cleansing the temple right now to a white conservative evangelical Christian in America, particularly a white conservative Adventist would suggest that's heresy. Like that's not... Right. That's not what's in the text at all. I don't know where you got that from. I don't know where you read that, but that's not that's not in there. So there's I right. I firmly do believe that there is absolutely something about white Jesus and that fictional creation of him that prohibits people from being able to embrace um interpretations like the ones I just gave. And I think that that is because mm-hmm. just like we were talking about before, white Jesus The creation of white Jesus as a fictional idea was not just about giving Jesus a new phenotype. It was not about giving him a new physical appearance. It was about giving him a whole new makeover. The preaching changes, his mission changes, where he went changes, what he does changes, like absolutely everything about Jesus is drastically shifted to match this new iteration. And so that is what the discomfort is. The discomfort is in, man, what she's talking about that is intimately attached to the historical Christ does not match what I was given with this fictional Christ. And this is why one of my favorite writers, Frederick Douglass, he writes this in his slave narrative. He says, um, I, I can't quote it. I wish I was cool like that. But basically what he, I tried. I was like, I thought in my mind, my mind was like, where are you going? You know, it's not up there. And basically what he says is there is this stark difference between biblical Christianity and American Christianity. And he says, 
um, American Christianity, as I'm seeing and understanding it, consists of cradle plundering and slavery and the raping of black women and all of these negative, violent, horrible things. This is American Christianity and, and, and the white American Jesus is okay with this kind of stuff because you're preaching to me that he's okay with this kind of stuff. And you're quoting scriptures while you're lashing me on this tree. So you're creating a whole theology around this white Jesus that is okay with violence against black bodies. And then these same black mm -hmm. bodies finally get access to the text for themselves. And then they see like, uh, no, what is in here is not what you presented to me. And so there is a biblical Christ. There is a biblical Christianity that is not the same as the American Christian um, creation. Huh. Yeah, I'm hearing a a well-articulated connection between what what many would simply call Christianity, but you're you're drawing out these distinctions and going there is so much culture wrapped up in the word when people say in America yeah. I am Christian, you're yeah. saying when you say that and and you were it sounds like you were handed these this language and way of analyzing the invisible structures we call constructs and ideas mm -hmm. uh, when you're at, when you're doing your masters. So yeah. uh, this gave you the language to then look at what people would simply say, "I'm a Christian," but if they say it with an American accent, with an American context that has certain political outcomes, you would say, "Ah, yes, that thing you're holding called Christianity contains a whole lot of." Uh, American culture, European culture that is descended from particular ideas that permeate uh, white European culture and now American exceptionalism and American culture as well. That's all wrapped up. So when you critique Christianity mm -hmm. for, for these people, and perhaps I wonder if when people say to you, well, you're a heretic, that's not, that's not in the Bible. I suppose it, it's probably, it might be a hard thing to critique because you're, you're critiquing the very structures of someone's like cultural built, both cultural and religious identity. That is it, friend. That's literally it. This is why I have so much patience whenever I talk to white people about white Jesus, because I get it. Uh -huh. This is yeah. this is not about um a like an internal hatred. This is uh like this is my God. Uh huh. This is yeah. Follow that. This is my God. Follow this is my, for me. I, I have an emotional, spiritual attachment to what I have been given. And so when you come and tell me that what I have been given has been harmful to you and not only has been harmful uh -huh. to you, but is in fact a lie, you are now suggesting to me that the, the entire framework with which my spiritual my my spirituality rests upon is untrue like that would uh, completely that would i'd be stressed and perhaps too perhaps not even just untrue but that i must somehow come to some level of admission that i have inadvertently propagated a system that has caused suffering and that is are probably a very hard thing to do when someone tries their whole life to be moral. And, and I'm, I'm also, cause yeah. the way you've painted the picture, I'm not seeing 
a blame system here. I'm not seeing mm-hmm. at the top, at the top of the assumptions being like, oh, you think all white people are racists. Mm-hmm. What I'm seeing is that this picture of there is there are outcomes to invisible cultures that drive us, and the outcomes to white people that may lead to both. Uh, deliberate and inadvertent oppression systems and things that are perpetuated but there's also something that is being missed out on a depth dimension that perhaps they themselves like me as a white australian i'm being handed something and and something might be invisible to me and that that's something that i i might be missing out on as well as yeah also you know having to develop the capacity to understand that even though I was handed this. Mm-hmm. I am both a beneficiary of a system mm-hmm. and potentially a propagator of a system mm-hmm. and detaching that from, I think it's hard from like a white <laughs> male perspective. I think it's hard yeah. to uh, detach. Like there's this, there's this innate individualism with which like mm-hmm. I would, I would kind of view everything. So it's hard to, if, if it, like to hear what you're saying and you say, there is a system that propagates oppression that results in perhaps you being oppressed with certain systems that are set up. It's hard for me to engage with that idea seriously without going, well, should I feel guilty? And is it my fault? It's this, it's this hard detachment because it like the, the individualistic construct Mm -hmm. seems to be like not, not big enough to hold the ability to go, Oh, like I was handed this as well. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm also in a way a victim of it, but it didn't hurt me as much as somebody else in that, in that sense of like pulling out these things, if that makes sense. No. Yeah. And I think, so what you're now getting into is really the, 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 the DNA of whiteness, because within Uh the DNA of whiteness is that privilege of individualism. Whereas Uh within the Uh classification of blackness, that individualism does not exist which is why a white person can go rob a drugstore and they're going to say, Johnny had a bad day. Johnny was dealing with his bullies and, or he has a mental Mental illness illness or something of this nature. Uh, And so we want to protect Johnny because what happened to Johnny, no one sees that as uh, man, we really have to be careful of white people because they have a tendency to steal (laughs) out of drugstores. Right. Whereas what (laughs) always happens is any black person does anything. Every black person at home that watches the news sits and is like, oh, please tell me he's not black. Please tell me he's not black. Please tell me he's not black. Because immediately the conversation is not Jamal had a bad day and Jamal has a mental illness. The conversation is all black people are uh, thieves. And And even if they say Jamal robbed a drugstore. Yep the picture shown on the news perpetuates that already existing story that the person watching goes black. Yep. And, and there right. is a, there's a, a, a critical race theorist named uh, Kwame Anthony Apia who kind of broke this down several years ago in that within race uh, within uh, yeah, I'll just say within race and these kind of classified labels, you have whiteness and blackness and whiteness literally operates in individualism. That is, that is probably the number yeah. one privilege that comes with whiteness that does not come with blackness. I, 
man, there's a lot of food for thought in just that simple sentence, Mm -hmm. the privilege of individualism, because I like exposing my limited narrative that, that I come from it from like, as I discover individualism myself and go, oh, this is like a construct that, you know, it disconnects me from certain things. I'm less connected, like from my family, like stereotypical white guy right here. I see my family like once every couple of weeks, haven't seen my brother in a couple of years. I don't even know who my cousins are, like super disconnected from like, yeah. from, from, from that side of it. And I always go, oh, like, yeah, like individual individualism as like this aspect of it, ah. but to, to kind of essentially do what do what ideas digest is trying to do and essentially ask the question what do i look like to you ah. to hear the sentence privilege of individualism just opens up a whole like ideas to sit with and digest because yeah there's a whole aspect of it because you can't see what what is just you can't you can't sometimes feel the wind at your back so to speak and and, yeah. and that that example you give of how i mean the stories, let's just take terrorism, the stories around terrorism. Absolutely. Uh, you can look at some statistics that go, okay, the most dangerous terrorist organization, if terrorism is defined as political motivated act of violence, if that's the operating definition, mm-hmm. then the most dangerous terrorist group in America is are white supremacist groups because they have the most guns and they perpetuate the most crimes. However, the story doesn't define that as terrorism so you have like it they, they count that as a rogue shooter a guy with a bad day mental health illness and so that's an interesting uh thing that to, to kind of pull out and go that is the privilege of individualism operating that is almost like that extension of what you're you're calling white supremacy and then we link that all the way back to the beginning of the religious construct that i guess sh- like contributes to a lot of these things because obviously culture and religion are are like these intertwined things that we can't necessarily know the exact combination because Um, because what because like we talked about before right like my religion is it's my individual experience with god that's that's how uh that's how white yes far right people are thinking this is my individual relationship with god and so you can't come and tell me that my individual relationship with God is somehow harmful to you. Yes. That doesn't make sense. that's a very sense. uniquely like American possible. idea because it's, it's, it's that uh, individual freedom. Like don't tell me what to do and don't tell me, because if you say you doing this hurts me, what I think the stereotypical American would say to that, and we can talk to them and find out more nuance later, but they would say, don't tell me what to do. That's on you. If it, if it like hurts you in these things, Conrad, the people out here in this country that I live in that are, uh, protesting, wearing masks and are running around talking about, I'm not going to wear a mask, blah, 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 are white Christians, white atheists Uh wear masks. Like, like, let's just Mm. keep it a hundred. Like white atheists wear masks, (laughs) white agnostics wear masks. It is white people who believe in Jesus that are out here like, I have the privilege of doing whatever it is I want. And that I feel like is so fascinating because that is antithetical to so much of what is in scripture, which goes back to what I was saying about the fact that this is not 
about your real understanding of Jesus and the Bible. It is about your inability and unwillingness to release a fictional God and a fictional theology. And it is all wrapped Mm. up in your need for individualism. Like, like while, while you were talking, this, this came to my mind, this came to my mind. Have you ever been in a class? Have you ever been in an English class? And let's say you're reading, I don't know, like, have you ever heard of like William Faulkner or Charles Dickens or. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's say you're reading Charles, you're, you're reading Charles Dickens. Has anyone, has the teacher ever asked you, Hey, Conrad, this is, this is a powerful white British text. You're from Australia. You're familiar with the British Empire. <laughs> what are your thoughts on Charles Dickens' work? Expound for us. No one, even... Uh, I would have... I would <laughs> even formulating that sentence, I, I almost didn't make it through. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would clearly have so many deep, critical thoughts on like... on. Charles Dickens. Right. I've only really heard his name. <laughs> but I don't know how many classes I've been in where it's like, uh-huh. okay, Claudia, we're we're reading Toni Morrison. Speak to us about uh-huh. the black female experience in America. It's like, uh-huh. seriously, you want me to speak for all black women in America over the last uh, 200 oh, years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like how And now that... you've given me a new vocabulary to apply. That's the privilege of individualism. And it's just going, oh, well, you as a black female, you're a collective with all black females. But if I was to ask Stacy, yo, you're white and a woman. What do you feel about like this suffragette movement over here or whatever? It's like, well, actually, like I, I'm, I don't know. I don't identify with that movement at all. So I don't have any thoughts like, yo, I went, I went on a cultural, a cultural studies tour to Tanzania. And so we were out there for about 30 days one of the teachers, I love him. I really do. He came up. He was like, Claudia, the moment we landed in in Kilimanjaro, Tanzania, he was like, how do you feel? And I was like, I feel, I feel, I feel good. I feel, I feel good. I feel okay. I'm feeling, I'm feeling good. I mean, you know, like we've, we've landed, you know, in Africa. Are you feeling, <laughs> are you feeling connected? And I was like, no, uh, I'm not sure anybody that I'm related to was from Tanzania. So no, I'm not having a particularly <laughs> like overarching spiritual moment right now. Uh, so it's like, yeah. it, like it again, just like points back to this idea that like black people are all represented in one entity. Like yes. there is no yes. nuance. There is no right. distinction. Yeah. It's like black, black, black. It's all the exact same thing. So you yeah, can yeah, all yeah. speak for each other. Whereas black, white black, people black, don't have to deal Bill, with that. Bill, Steve, Stacy. Literally, that's it. <laughs> that's literally it. Right. It's like, and, and so Interesting. it's very. And this, to to bring that back and and kind of because you've answered a lot of questions that I would normally ask. Okay. Normally I'd ask like how do others see you and I kind of want to leave like leave it at that like hmm. that kind of that that extension level that says how other people see you well as you people see you as the collective not necessarily as as like the individual, right? Um hmm. and so and and then how do you 
it's interesting to me when you pull out the mask example and it's white Christians doing this. I like to hone in on that little example there of Christians in that context. Mm-hmm. You know, people people might get annoyed with the way Conrad <laughs> engages in discussion sometimes because I'm always like, define that for me. Define what you mean when you use that word and uh, applying your definitions you've given me. When you say it's white Christians protesting this, this I'm hearing like there is a subset of American Christianity, a very large subset that are exclusively white that, that have this white Jesus idea that's wrapped up in the empire of America and capitalism and individual freedoms and, and these like American myths within Christianity. And so when you say like, white Christians, it's not necessarily the Christian part as to why they're protesting not wearing masks. Correct. Sounds to me like it's the white Jesus, the white capital American mm-hmm. idea that has like that has become a part of what what Amer- what some, a lot of Americans would call Christianity yeah. that leads them to this idea, Absolutely. I suppose. Absolutely. That's um, that's my full argument. And it's why I, when we started, I said, I uh, am not against white people because uh-huh. I don't believe that this is an, this is an individual thing. I believe that it, it is a mindset. Yes. It's an ideology. It's a belief yeah. system. So that it's why the white people that don't think like this and don't function like this, I don't have a problem with. <laughs> I'm very uh, good with you, them. You my simultaneously. Was... Oh yeah, keep going. Your issue is no. My 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 issue is 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 with with you and your and not not you, Conrad. But it's like you know my issue is with the with oh, the blonde Jesus. Come on, no. <laughs> Even though you look like white Jesus, right? No, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is very, isn't that very therapeutic for you? Right. Like to explain oh to an icon of white Jesus what the idea is. I'm like, I'm t- ah, yes, good idea, Claudia. T- I will take all of my images down off the walls now. Right? Yo. <laughs> But, uh, but but no, it's it's this it's this white American, like you were saying, capitalist idea, this framework that I disagree with, and whether it is exemplified in white bodies or black bodies, because don't be listen, listen, there are some black people that believe in this way as well, so it can be it, mm-hmm. it can be manifested in a white body, it can be manifested in a black body. I fully disagree with it. So it is it. Well, that goes to your point. Yeah. Is that if it, as you say, like this race construct has been handed to us to pit people who appear different against each other. But it's also an idea that that can that has very real impacts when accepted because people might hear might hear the, the when when you say like, oh, like race doesn't exist, it's not a thing. But that doesn't mean that when accepted as a construct, it becomes a thing. You're kind of like holding these two ideas being like, ideally, no, it's just been, it's an idea handed in the service of capitalism. Yeah. However, as it's operating now, yes, it's a real thing. But then when you say, well, there are black bodies that accept these ideas as well, that kind of, uh, that, that kind of, uh, bolsters what you're saying when you're talking about white people can operate like this, black people can operate like this, because it is just an idea to be accepted, right, in, or or rejected. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Mm-hmm. I th- I think there is a lot to sit with 
and digest out of these ideas. It ended. It ended somewhere where I, I didn't think it would get this political, but I like it because I, you know, a bit of a hobby of mine is American politics. You know, it's always really? new reality TV show. Watching what's going on. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I'm glad I so, could give you your your uh, a slight fix. So, you know. <laughs> the, that's it. The, and the, the interconnectedness or the unavoidable trajectory that religion is so interconnected with the outflow that becomes politics. Because if politics is defined as us together working out how we move together as a society, then that's politics. And so if religion, you know, even in the white Jesus personalized individual savior idea mm-hmm. that still has the onflow effect ideas that i accept religiously white jesus ideas like a black jesus idea th- yeah. that will have political ramifications and right. so i it yeah i've had definitely is, is there anything you want to add or wrap up as we as we finish up that you might have wanted to say oh man i think i got everything out if i could wrap if i could wrap everything up i think that what i would say is to your point that whatever your religious belief system is it will infiltrate every aspect of your life Uh so however you think about god that is how you will think about social engagement it it will influence Uh what you think about politics it will impact what you think about the economy how the economy should function and operate like they are not they cannot be compartmentalized um and i think that that's the thing that people don't understand about religion philosophy like belief systems um regardless of denomination or, or worldview, they all literally operate from the standpoint of we are the foundation upon which all thought is mm-hmm. thus disseminated. So if it, it can be Buddhism, it could be it could be Islam, it could be Christianity, it could be Judaism, it could be the Tao Te Ching. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it, it could be atheism. It does not matter. Whatever your foundational religious philosophical worldview is, that will inevitably influence what you think and believe about the spiritual, the physical, the social, the political, period, the economic, Mm. period. And Mm. um, I think that that is why religion or many, many believe that religion has had so much of a detrimental effect on society as a whole. Um, and unfortunately why religion has kind of a bad name right now, but I think that it is also why if we could understand world religions as a whole from that foundation, from that understanding, then I think that we could better get people to return back to the sacred texts of their religions and not the cultural iterations of their religions. Cause that's really what we've been talking about for the last, you know, couple of hours right. is yeah. that there cultural is a iterations. difference between the actual religion and the sacred text, because all of them are Eastern, regardless of whichever one it is. And the culture, hmm. the Western cultural iteration of that religion, particularly as co-opted, re-narrated by Western European culture, right? Because all the relig- all of world religions are Eastern, like I just said. 
And mm-hmm. as they have grown, they have entered into the Western world. But as they have entered into the Western world, they have entered under new narratives as though we've been playing telephone around the globe. So that what was originally articulated is not what is currently being expressed. And rather than leaving all of religion aside and saying that religion is inherently wrong, what we must do is abandon the inaccurate cultural iterations of religion and return to the original expressions of them so that we can have a better... Uh, more accurate expression of what they really are. And in, in doing that, I firmly believe that we would inevitably improve society on all of those mm. levels. Because we will not be mm. operating and moving off of, a, off of a fiction. At that point, we would be operating and moving off of truth. Well, well summed up. A lot to sit with and digest. Now, if you're listening to this and you completely disagree, congratulations. Because <laughs> to sit for like, this is our longest interview so far and I'm cool with it. Uh, and if you could if you could sit with that for that long and it, by the end you're like, okay, whether you agree or disagree, who really cares? Hopefully you understand some of the ideas Claudia is talking about. Hopefully you understand some of the perspectives and journeys that have led her to talk about this these topics in this way because that's the ultimate goal and like i said if you've managed to sit with a podcast you disagree with that is not a small feat it's very uncomfortable to sit with and listen to somebody you disagree with so congratulations and well done if you want to turn this podcast into a practice remember listen to the one that triggers you congratulations if you've done that ask a question on the instagram post like what did i miss There's a lot i definitely bloody missed in that one a lot to, a lot to go into <laughs> and respond send us a dm what did it make you think it made me think a lot of different things so turn it into a practice and engage on that level and we can try and develop our capacity to listen to those we disagree with listen to new ideas and ask somebody else who is different to ask hey what do i look like to you because that's actually a very interesting question if you can sit and listen to the answer so once again if you're still here on this episode you must be a really good friend of the show rate and review us on apple Podcasts. recommend us to your mom your dad any friend because that's how we grow and thank you so much claudia for joining us uh we have 26 seconds left on the instagram live uh and so thanks so much for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure it has been amazing conrad as you know i have been a fan for a really long time so i'm just honored to even have the opportunity to be here i absolutely love what the, what you guys do thank you for having me thanks everybody for joining us instagram live seven seconds left uh i don't know what else to say seven seconds left thanks for asking your questions J- join us later next time amazing <laughs>